The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. All right, hot topics. Week six, vanity, gluttony, and drunkenness. Uh, these questions uh, were varied and I combined them. So one of the questions was, uh, is wearing makeup and nail polish considered vanity? I got a couple questions on the Bible's teaching about consuming alcohol, which those always come up as well. And then I had an interesting question on the topic of gluttony. Uh, the contributor says, I've never heard a pastor preach on the sin of gluttony, yet this is a problem among so many in the Christian family and even promoted in some sense by many churches in their gatherings. And so maybe you grew up in a tradition where everybody came to church and then you went into a rec hall or another part of the church building and everybody had brought casseroles and crock pots and everybody after church just gorged themselves together. I don't know. Uh, that isn't how we do it around here, but uh, not atypical. And so these three things came in and they seemed to fit uh, together. And I thought how fitting on Thanksgiving weekend that we could talk about these topics together. Now, obviously gluttony and drunkenness are oftentimes close together in the scriptures and vanity is covered in a variety of different ways. We'll talk about that. And um, obviously these are issues that different people face and deal with in different ways. So all of us know people who we might consider to be vain, preoccupied with their external experience, uh, I'm sorry, external appearance. And, and maybe that's not our thing. And maybe overeating isn't our thing or alcoholism or drinking too much. Um, these things are all gonna kind of emerge as very similar. And I think some other blanks might be filled in for each of us as we consider what they mean. Now, I never really considered myself to be a vain person. Uh, my dad made sure that I knew that I was an ugly kid. I remember when I was 18 and I felt called to pastoral ministry. I've shared this story before with some of you, but I was trying to find a way to tell my dad that I felt that I was supposed to shift my study from architecture, which would be you know, a significant and substantial income and a great career path uh, to ministry. And I didn't know how he'd feel about that. And so I had switched my major to public speaking and communication. And so I started taking a radio and broadcasting class. And so I came to my dad kind of to tell him this thing in a, in a back door kind of a way. And I said, dad, I feel like I'm supposed to do this change in my life. And so I'm taking uh, communication classes for radio and broadcasting. And he said, uh, yeah, I've always thought you had a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. So not a whole lot you can do with this. And so vanity didn't become my thing, but I think you'll understand uh, how these things fit together as we move forward. I do want to provide just some simple definitions so we're all on the, on the same page. Uh, vanity is described in Webster's Dictionary as excessive pride in or admiration of one's own appearance or achievements. So it might just not be how you look, but um, how you appear to others based on your success level, what you drive, where you live. Um, there's also a second definition, the quality of being worthless or futile. And this is actually the way the word vanity gets used mostly in the scriptures, especially in Ecclesiastes, where it's used again and again and again. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, just means worthless or futile. But those are two different ways of using the same word. Secondly, gluttony is described as habitual greed or excess in eating. So that's pretty straightforward. And then drunkenness, the state of being intoxicated or intoxication. And so drunkenness describes someone who's in a state of intoxication, but can also describe a person who is uh, regularly, excessively consuming alcohol. And so this would be someone we might call a drunk. 
What do the scriptures say? So those are definitions that we all work with to understand. What do the scriptures say? But before we jump into those, I just wanna ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word, to open our minds, soften our hearts, and to speak to us directly about where these topics intersect with our experience and how we might be positioned to receive what he wants to give to all of us. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, which we are going to read together. God, we thank you that you have moved in space, time, and in our lives to satisfy our greatest need. Lord, there's a hunger in all of us that we are seeking to satisfy and to fill. Lord, there's insecurity, sadness, loneliness, anxiety, all of these things that we face. And there's so many ways that they can be masked. And as we consider these three and the way that they relate to one another, Lord, I pray that your word would speak clearly to us that we would not be fixated on this external way that these things are processed, but that we would hear your voice pointing out to us where there's a lack, where there's a need, so that we can encounter you, the living God, so that we can receive by faith the gift of yourself, Lord, so that we can be filled, maybe for some in ways they never thought imaginable. And so would you give us ears to hear what your word says? Would you give us hearts to receive it? God, I pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would not only convict us of sin, but convince us of truth and provide hope. God, we know that you supply every need we have. And so help us as we consider these individual and combined topics this morning. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. And I'm glad I've got Bill and Ellen and Gary in the room so that they can say amen and laugh at all my dumb jokes like you pretend to. All right, 1 Timothy, let's talk about vanity for a minute. 1 Timothy 2, 8 and 10. There's two passages, one in Paul's writing to Timothy, one in Peter, 1 Peter, that talks specifically about how women adorn themselves. And I think this is the heart of the question, is wearing makeup and nail polish considered vanity? So here's what Paul writes to Timothy about him pastoring the church at Ephesus. Paul says, I desire then, that in every place, men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. That's how the men should conduct themselves. And then verse nine, likewise, also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable, somebody say respectable, respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Likewise, Peter in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4 says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry. So both of those two things in, in both of these passages or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which, listen to, this, listen to this phrase, in God's sight is very precious. And so both of these two male pastors list similar things that women of their day would wear to gain attention from uh, people in their culture. These things were associated with things that were not respectable. And so in this culture, things like braided hair, golden pearls, or costly, clothes, costly attire clothes would be 
considered uh, unrespectable. Now, these change throughout culture. And so we're not gonna like uh, pin down golden pearls and braids as those things are always bad in every situation. But all of us know what it's like when our daughter puts on clothes and is about to walk out of the house and we say, absolutely not, you're not wearing that. And we'd say, you look like a fill in the blank, something that's not respectable. And so it's a very easy thing culturally to know what is respectable and what is not respectable. And so it's silly for us to take things that are specific in the scriptures to the cultural period and then just apply them um, carte blanche across all of culture and all of history. When in fact, it's obvious that these two guys in this particular culture are sharing a perspective on these particular items. And yet um, some of these are pretty benign in our culture as well. So that's some of those passages and we'll see how these fit together. But let's look at gluttony. Here's how gluttony emerges in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, in the law, we get through the 10 commandments and explanation of the 10 commandments. And in Deuteronomy, we get into case law. And this is where there's a description of here's how you ought to do thus. And so this is an expansion of the commandment to honor one's father and mother. And so it's like, in this case, how does this apply? And so Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21 says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, though they discipline him. So they're doing the right thing. It's not the parent's fault. Uh, He will not listen to them. Then his father and his mother should take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, listen to what they say. This is our son who is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. And so this case law says, let's make an example of rebellious and evil sons. Now, obviously these would be grown, either older teenagers or 20 something sons uh, who are gluttonous and drunkards and unwilling to yield to their parents. And this is how there ought to be handled. And so, man, it'd be rough to be a rebellious teenager in the ancient Near East in Israel. Death penalty. So you can see that gluttony is a bad thing from the outset. We also see chapters in the Bible like Proverbs 23, which hits gluttony and drunkenness again and again and again. I can't read the whole chapter for you, but look at verses 19 to 21 as an example. Hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Be not among the drunkards or among the gluttons, eaters of meat for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them in rags. And so here, this is about the company that you keep. It's basically saying people who engage in this way are bad for you, will corrupt you. And this is not where you want to end up. This is a, this is a wisdom literature way of saying, don't, don't associate with the excessive consumer more, 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 but instead live a life that is a generous contributor. So you can check out the rest of Proverbs 23 for yourself. And then it's notable uh, to see how in Luke chapter seven, the Pharisees attack both of God's messengers, John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for the Messiah and Jesus, the son of God. And in Luke chapter seven, Jesus says, hey, John the Baptist came eating no bread and no wine. So he's fasting all the time. And he has this, this Nazarite vow. So he's not drinking any alcohol. And they say he has a demon. And then the son of man comes and he's eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom will be justified by her children. Jesus says, you'll see the good of what comes out of who I am and what I've done, regardless of what judgmental people say about me. So it's, it's clear from the scriptures that uh, gluttony is a problem. Gluttony is not something you wanna be associated with or do yourself. It's definitely an insult. Uh, I think it's funny in the, 
in the uh, King James version, it has the, the phrase there for glutton is an eater of meat. So this is a person who has access to expensive food and gorges themselves. And then you see a drinker of wine or a wine bibber in the King James, which I think is funny. Which brings us to drunkenness. Now there's one imperative in Ephesians chapter five and verse 18, where it specifically says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. But alcohol has a long and storied past all throughout the scripture. Uh, drunkenness goes all the way back to Noah after the flood, uh, planting a vineyard and, and getting wasted. And so there's a lot the Bible has to say about alcohol, what it is, how it's to be used as a gift, how dangerous it is, how careful people should be as they partake in it. And so there's more warnings about alcohol than anything else. Um, and so you can kind of put together a picture that uh, alcohol is not seen as something that's completely prohibited for everybody. Although for some who don't have the ability to have self-control with a little bit, they shouldn't drink at all. But drunkenness is something that is clearly off limits for Christian people. And so we shouldn't be getting drunk. Now, vanity, gluttony, drunkenness. What do these things have in common? Obviously, gluttony and drunkenness go together, eating food, drinking alcohol in excess. And that's gonna have obvious uh, repercussions, both in your economic life and in your physical body and your lifespan. But why do, we, why do we put vanity in there as well? Here's the reason. Put these three things together because all three of them are symptomatic of an underlying problem. And the symptom is the same. It's too much. It's too much. So whether that's vanity, too much time in front of the mirror, too much makeup, too many pairs of shoes, too much money spent on externals, a fascination with the car you drive, the house you live in, your, the watch on your hand, what your clothes say about you. Uh, this can be expressed in immodesty, specifically for women. You can dress in a way that exploits your physical body to get attention from men. It's too much, too much showing, too much skin. This can happen um, in our generation, in our Instagram world with just too much time in the gym, just a fascination and a fixation on the condition of your body and needing to tone up everything. And it just expresses itself in endless mirror selfies and flexing and you in workout clothes. Um, it's, it's vanity. It's a fixation on the superficial, the surface level. And it's focused on what do other people think of me? It's really about perception. How am I perceived? And so the symptom is too much, too much, too much, too much. But the focus is on gaining the attention, the affirmation, the admiration of other people that you are successful enough, that you are pretty enough, that you are fit enough. And so the point here is too much. And the same can be said for, for gluttony. It's just too much food, too many chips, too much desserts, second helping, third helping. It's constantly going back for more, 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 more. Too many trips through the drive-through and eventually this starts to be a problem and you're, you start to reflect that in your weight and in your health and your cholesterol. And maybe you're finding yourself eating alone in a parking lot before you head home. It's too much. It's too many $9 macchiatos, another one and another one and another one. Drunkenness is the same thing. Too much alcohol, keep going back for more the next one and the next one and the next one, never enough. And this can be for various reasons. People, people eat too much in excess. People drink too much in excess for various reasons. For some people uh, can stem from covering trauma, something that happened to you that you can't get out of your mind. It constantly plagues you. It could be a way to deal with anxiety or stress. Um, I know, I know for me, like I just have a really hard time turning it off of just 
putting my thoughts aside and having control over um, not thinking about work anymore, problems that you're facing. And so it can just be a thing that you turn to to check out. And so as you consider those things, all of them have this thing in common too much. And we could go beyond these three. I mean, you can do the same thing without any, without food, drink, or a little bit of makeup and just binge watch Netflix all weekend. It's too much. This could, this could be constantly shopping another, another shirt and another outfit and another and more and more and more and more and more. Pornography does the exact same thing. It's un, um, unable to be satisfied and coming back for more again and again and again. And you get stuck in this trap of too much and outside of the bounds of what's good. And this can have a spiritual component as well. There's plenty of people who are addicted to church, another church meeting and another thing and volunteering here and doing this and constantly staying busy for God and doing too much because of an underlying symptom. And so these things don't have to be typical. In fact, vanity can be completely atypical. Some people can be so fixated and insecure about their physical appearance that they immediately go towards self-deprecating, making fun of themselves, pointing out their flaws to other people, almost like, let me say it before somebody else says it. Vanity can be expressed in, um, at least in my version growing up was, I never thought I would be physically attractive and I would be able to doll myself up to look better or work out to look better. None of those things ever worked, but I could grab all the attention in the room by acting out and wanting everybody to look at me. And it's the same thing. It's just drawing all attention to ourselves. And so there's so many ways, so many symptoms around the concept of too much that all of us experience. And that's not even to consider the excess of, prescription medication that our, our heavily medicated society is very quick to say, this will solve your problem. This will tune down your thoughts. This will calm your fears. This will help you process your trauma. And we just, as a culture, can just stay half medicated. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting in this sermon that you immediately stop taking any medicine you're taking. That's something you need to consult your doctor on and consider, but it may be part of the problem as well. And so the issue here is that all of these have this in common. They are symptoms of too much but the real problem is not a problem of too much. The real problem is an issue of not enough, not enough attention, not enough compliments, not enough admiration, not enough satisfaction, not enough food to mask the feelings, the loneliness, the insecurity, the misery, not enough drinks to settle your mind or stop the voices or make your problems go away. The reason the symptom is too much is because there's a hole, a void, a hunger, an incapacity that we're continually trying to fill. And so I don't know if it's any one of these big three for you or what the Holy Spirit might be speaking directly to you, because oftentimes it's hard to see these things in the mirror. We, we justify ourselves by our best days and by our best intentions, and we judge other people by their obvious outcomes or sometimes the, the impacts of their outcomes. My, my paternal grandfather was by all measures an alcoholic. And so I learned at a young age only to visit him between the hours of 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. We had some to drink, but not too much to drink. And I learned going over to his house before 11 a.m., he was in a terrible mood. And after about one o'clock in the afternoon, he had drank so much, he just turned into an angry, belligerent old man. And so I would only go see him. And I remember one of those times going to his house early and watching him sit at his counter with a beer in his hand in a koozie, waiting for the clock at 10.59 to hit 11, because in his mind, only a drunk would drink before 11. And so sometimes, sometimes it's hard to see our issue. And so I wanna take just a moment to just 
open up our hearts, open up our minds and invite the Holy Spirit to diagnose where our not enough is, where we might be pursuing too much. Maybe it's in one of these three categories. It's not, doesn't have to be a bad thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 20 thing, 10 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. This is a quote from the Corinthians, but not all things build up. And so there could be, you know, completely benign things in your life that are morally neutral, not evil at all. And yet those are things that perhaps you turn to, to mask these same problems and to solve uh, these same issues. And so think about it for a second. In fact, if I was going to preach this sermon standalone, not as part of the Hot Topic series, I think I would call it hunger for more, hunger for more. And maybe you're listening and you're not a Jesus follower. Maybe you don't have church categories, Bible categories for these things. But what I'm sharing with you is describing your experience as a person that you continue to do these same things over and over and over again. There's never enough. And then you always go back. And it's because of a deep sense that something is off. And I wanna share this quote with you from C.S. Lewis. He writes, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And I wonder if this inner desire, this inner hunger that maybe you're seeking to fill with things that will never fill it up, that's leading to excess in your life, too much, too much, too much. I wonder if the real solution is not turning those things down, doing them less, being less fixated on your appearance, drinking less frequently or in less quantities, not going back for seconds or taking a break from the sweets or New Year's resolutions, a new diet. I wonder if you would consider with me for a moment that this is an indication that you were made by God, for God, and to walk with God. And the truth is that nothing can satisfy you except for the divine father who made you and loves you, who provides an anchor point for you to identify yourself as who God made you to be, who gives you eyes to see yourself as God sees you, to experience a relationship with God that's life-giving, to be filled by him, and to live a life that has satisfaction as its starting point. You know, John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And this is the relationship that we're meant to have through faith in God's son, the God man, the one who is fully us and fully him. And through our union with him, we experience a new source of life. I think it's interesting. We know very little about what Jesus looked like. I know a lot of people talk about the, the shroud of Turin in Jesus' face and do we know what he looked like? But there's one passage in Isaiah 53 that prophetically very clearly describes the death of Jesus. And it has this phrase in verse two. It says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. So this is just something kind of just popping up here. It says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And here Isaiah gives us a glimpse into the fact that there was really nothing physically special about Jesus. He came from a low place. He kind of probably looked like anybody else. 
And yet, when you encounter Jesus in the gospels, you find that he was divinely attractive, that everybody wanted to be near him, that everybody wanted to hear him, and that people who had a genuine interaction with him that was based, predicated upon faith and a disposition of humility, they found in Jesus something that they would give up their lives to experience forever. They would walk away from family and business and security into an unknown future because of the beauty of who they experienced in the person of Jesus. And this is what I wanna take you back to the reality that these things are really symptomatic. These are all too much problems, but they focus on the reality of a not enough problem on the inside of us. I love this about all 12 step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, uh, Sexaholics Anonymous. They really in 12 steps draw you back to God. I mean, you start by admitting your powerlessness. I have a problem that I can't solve and all of my efforts to solve that end up being destructive. And certainly there's less destructive and more destructive ways of doing that. For people who are specifically struggling with alcoholism, you have to acknowledge that you have a problem and then you have to believe in, you have to activate faith that there is a source of power, namely God, who can actually deliver you from this, something greater than you, that your inner strength is not enough. And then step three, you have to make a decision. You have to activate your belief and then obey to decide to turn over your will to this person. After you've done that, after you've trusted in God or a higher power or whatever term you wanna use, then you'd make the step of taking an, an extreme and fearless inventory, searching inventory. Who have I been? What have I really? And then take responsibility for that. This is the stuff of repentance and confession. Step five is to admit to God, self and others, the exact nature of your wrongs. Six is to be entirely ready to have God remove all defects. Seven is to humbly ask him to remove them from you. And then it gets practical. Step eight, make a list of persons harmed and be willing to make amends. Nine is to make direct amends without injuring someone further. And so sometimes saying sorry about something or bringing something up can be more problematic. But the goal here is that you are making peace with people through your own repentance and brokenness, taking responsibility for your mistakes. Step 10 is the ongoing long one to continue to take personal inventory and admit when you are wrong. This is humility. This is when you say I'm, I'm in process and I do make mistakes and then take, take responsibility for it. Step 11 is to pray for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. And so here you have a picture of a, a, a lifestyle of dependence upon God and engaging in prayer. And then 12 is to share these principles with others. And so this is some, some tools for people to overcome alcoholism, but really this is just a broken down process, a practical process of the invitation of the good news of Jesus. I mean, this is what Jesus came to do. He came to bridge the gap between God and man. He came to be a atoning sacrifice so that you could be forgiven. So these things could be removed. He came so that he could send his life-giving spirit so that you would have the power to depend on him. He came to be an intermediary, a high priest, so that we could pray to him and ask him to help us and to, to transform us. And so this is about faith and repentance and confession and dependence and obedience. And this is what is required. God himself is required. There's no three steps to overcoming your vanity. There's no uh, quick and easy way to, to not being a glutton or a drunkard. This is hard stuff, but it requires God. And that is the point of this. But I just wanna tell you that God actually sees you for who you are. I love this in the David story. 
David wasn't the best looking brother. He wasn't the oldest brother. He wasn't the strongest or the tallest. He wasn't the one people would have thought as a son of Jesse would be the king of Israel, but he was the one who God chose. And it's because God sees the heart. First Samuel 16, seven, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, the, the fact of the matter is that food is a gift from God. Alcohol, even alcohol in the scriptures, a gift from God. Makeup, probably a gift from God. Psalm 104, 14 to 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine. I think that's the makeup part right there. And bread to strengthen man's heart. All of these things are good gifts. The problem is when these good gifts become a substitute for the one true gift, this is when these excesses begin to take over. See, this is really the stuff of what the Bible calls idolatry. This is when a good thing becomes a God thing. When we try to satisfy our inner longing for God himself with attention, with appearance, with food, drink, this is when we end up in these destructive behaviors. All these things can be good. So what do we do about it? Well, number one, we have to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. He's the only one that can fix us on the inside. He's the only one that can give us a new heart. He's the only one that can give us new eyes. He's the only one that can help us see ourselves the way that God sees us and then interact with a world that doesn't see things the way God sees things. He's the only one that can give us the strength and the power to have self-control. He's the only one who can give us a new appetite for something more powerful. And so I want to read to you a bit of instruction from the New Testament, but I want you to see in these passages how this instruction about what we're supposed to do is predicated upon a provision that God has already made. So, so look, look at Philippians chapter two, verses three and 11, as we consider just vanity, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition. So this is pride in what you have or what you've accomplished or conceit. And this is your preoccupation with self, but in humility, so this is, the inverse we're supposed to do or in being instructed, count others more significant than yourselves. You'll be less preoccupied with yourself when you are focusing on other people. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So you can be an encourager. You can notice things about other people. You don't have to have all the attention. You don't have to be put together all the time. It can be others focused. But verse five says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have been gifted, given, the mind of Christ, the Christ mind, to know what he knows, to believe what he has revealed and to see things as he sees things and then to live in the world the way he does, who though he was in the form of God, the best looking, most powerful creature ever did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself. And so he had something to give away. I talk about this with our youth group all the time, the well. And we say the same thing every single week. We draw, we draw near, drink deep, live full. A relationship with God is is something you have to constantly be coming back to. He wants to walk with you. You were made by God, for God, to walk with God. You draw near to him, he draws near to you. When you're spending time with him, learn to take your fill of him, drink deeply, find yourself satisfied, uh, find your cares cast, find your prayers prayed, find your needs met, uh, find your hope strengthened, so that you can live full, live full. A person who's prone to too much is a person who's living empty and constantly trying to put more in than will ever fill you up. And yet, if you are living full, you can, 
like Jesus, empty yourself, taking on the form of a servant, being focused on other people, born in the likeness of men and found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is the pattern for the Christian life. We die that we may live. We give up so that we may gain. Luke 9, 23 to 25, Jesus invites all of us. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, hold on to the things that you have control over. Whoever does that will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then he asks this question, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And so I just want to tell you, especially as we're heading into these holiday seasons and you're thinking about my diet starts in January or I'm going to make this change to my lifestyle or I want to be less this way and more this way. Any attempts at self-denial without gaining Jesus are futile. In your own strength, you will never, ever, ever be able to find the capacity to deny self unless you are substituting your appetite for self with something you've gained. Let me show you this in Philippians chapter three. Paul, he details all of the gain that he had through where he came from, who he had been and what he had done. And then he says in verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness that comes, righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that which we receive. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so here we have a picture of Paul saying, I'm trading it all in, all the things I pursued that was never enough that I was always continually going after. I'm saying no more to that life. And instead I'm bringing in by faith the Jesus life. And now I'm overflowing my life in the purpose that he has made for me. Similarly, in Romans chapter five, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith in verse one, we have peace with God. Peace, that thing that too many drinks are poured in search of, that too many bags of chips are opened in search of, that too much makeup is applied in search of. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because we have been justified by faith in his son. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, into the presence of God, the life-giving spirit of God, always more, everything that we need met in Christ. And so we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We are people who have a future look and we are people who have reason to worship in all situations because our hope is fixed in Jesus. And then we get this amazing little hope cycle. Holly Furtick has a great sermon on this called the hope cycle. Not only that, Paul writes, but we rejoice in our suffering. So even when things are hard for us, we don't have to turn to alcohol or food or what other people think. No, we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering because we know that suffering in produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces more hope. Why? Because God is doing something on the inside of us and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to 
us. Everything that you need to get through the difficult parts of life has been provided for you in the person of the Holy Spirit who resides in you and is an overwhelming and overfilling love. This is a new source, a new source. No longer what other people think. No longer keeping up with the Joneses. No longer another meal, another snack, another sweets. No longer another drink, checking out, um, quieting the voices. No, now there's a new source, a new vision, a new hope, a new strength. I wanna, I wanna close right here. This is Galatians chapter five, because there is, there is activity to be done on our part. We're gonna get to the fruit of the spirit, self-control. Galatians chapter five. I wanna show you it's not just about you white knuckling your way into a new behavior. That's not what self-control is. This is a dependent outcome of a relationship with God by his Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Let your life steps be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Doesn't mean they'll go away, but you won't gratify them. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. You're going in a totally opposite direction. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you wanna do. So you don't wanna do those things anymore. You're trying to put them away. Well, you need a new set of desires that take you in a different direction. Verse 18, but if you were led by the spirit, you're not under the law. It's not about rule keeping. It's not about making a list. I'm only gonna do, I'm only gonna do this much time getting ready in front of the mirror. I'm only gonna go to the gym this many times. I'm only gonna have this many drinks. I'm only gonna have this many helpings. No, no, no. All those do is restrain evil. They do not transform the heart. In verse 22, he says, the fruit of the spirit, what grows out of a life-giving relationship with God who is enough is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now you may find that a recovery group for you is a helpful uh, bit of grace from God, a helpful tool where you can find community and accountability. You may find that therapy or counseling or even medication is a thing that helps you to take the next step. But I am telling you, you, really need one thing. And that is the God who made you, the God who made you for himself, and the God who wants to walk with you every day. So like I tell our middle school students, you make it your effort every day to draw near, to drink deep, and to live full. Because the reality is you are not enough. And that's okay, because God is. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true for every single one of us, although it's applied differently at different stages and in different situations to help us overcome different challenges. God, we thank you that you always draw us back to eternal life through faith in your son, Jesus, that you always give us the promise of your Holy Spirit who resides in us and empowers us to respond to the new desires that we have, the new faith that we have, the new relationship. God, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves the way that you see us, to know you as the God who fills us up and the God who satisfies our every good desire. 
God, I thank you for the power and strength to overcome fleshly impulses and desires that lead to destruction. And God, I thank you that there is uh, power and purpose beyond every symptom of seeking to find a God thing in a good thing. God, and I pray that you would just redeem and restore the good gifts that you have for your people, Lord, as we find everything that we need in you. I pray for anyone who's listening to this that doesn't know you, God, I pray that they would see your gift of your son, Jesus, motivated by your love that he came into the world on that first Christmas, incarnating your presence in history as a man, lived a life that we could not, died our death and was victorious over death and the grave. God, I thank you that there's life to be found in his name. And I just pray that there would be faith to believe in him, to receive the power of your Holy Spirit. God, as we head into these holiday seasons and actually practically face opportunities to indulge ourselves or drink too much or, or buy things that we really don't need so that we have some status symbol, God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us and convince us and that we would find everything we need in you so that, Lord, we might live full and be able to overflow love and purpose, encouragement and strength and hope into the world around us, God, a world that so desperately needs the light you wanna shine through us. So we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. God bless you guys, have a great week. Look forward to seeing you next Sunday, December 4th, my birthday. Can't wait to be back with you then. God bless you.